Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come today with so much gratitude and confidence that you reign. You rule over all things. You rule over the nations. There's nothing that happens that is outside of your power. And we're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have secured salvation for us by your blood. So we can trust you as our shepherd. We can trust you to lead us, to supply our every need, to furnish a table for us, and to ultimately bring us into your house. As we open your word today, we pray that you would guide us by your word, that you would feed our souls, that you would direct us in the way, and that you would increase our faith and our confidence in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please open this morning to Exodus chapter 28. We'll be in Exodus 28 and 29 this morning as we continue our study through the tabernacle. We've looked at the the structure of the tabernacle. We've looked at the, the furniture, the items that are in the tabernacle. And today we're going to look at the priests, the people who would serve there in the tabernacle. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have flown often on an airplane. Um, and if you're like me, maybe this is a guy thing, but you're always sitting there thinking, I wonder what happens if somehow the pilot becomes incapacitated. And they say, does anyone here know how to fly a plane? Would I be able to go into the cockpit and take the helm and fly this thing or land this thing. Maybe you're the kind of person who wants to be that guy. Maybe you're the kind of person that hopes someone else there has a pilot's license. But I think we all understand that, that idea that when the right man is in the cockpit, then it benefits everybody else on the plane. We all need that person to do their job and to do it well. There's benefits for us all. And when that person is missing, when they can't do their job or they don't do their job well, People are in trouble. So the tabernacle is a wonderful provision of God's grace. It's something that brings great benefit to God's people. It's a place of holiness where God planned to dwell, where worship was to happen. But because the tabernacle is holy, not just anyone can enter there. Not just anyone can do that job. We've seen everything that the tabernacle provides, everything that it supplies for God's people, but the question remains, who is going to enter into the tabernacle and perform the rituals that were prescribed so that Israel could enjoy this ongoing relationship with their covenant God? Well, just like passengers on a plane need a pilot, worshipers of a holy God need a priest. We need that. We need someone who will represent us before God. We need someone who will serve in God's presence and perform the necessary rituals of atonement that need to happen. So in chapter 28 and 29 of Exodus, God gives instructions to Moses regarding the priesthood. We've looked already, like I said, at the tabernacle itself and the items that are in the tabernacle. But this morning, I want to look at these men who would serve there and consider what we learn from the priests, and we'll sort of break this into two pieces. The first is understanding the crucial role of the priests for Israel. What's their role in the tabernacle? Well, we see that God sovereignly appoints these priests for his people. Verse 1 through 3 gives us sort of the summary instructions. God says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, 
for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So the people need someone to fill this role. But only God can make a priest. Only God can decide who it is that would have this privilege of entering into the holy place and who it is that would be authorized to perform the priestly duties. And God sovereignly chooses Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the first high priest of Israel. His sons would serve with him. They would one day fill his shoes, and this high priesthood would be passed down um, through their descendants. And God tells Moses there's two things. They're going to need, first of all, holy garments. That's verse 2. And then they're going to be consecrated. That's verse 3. And that's sort of an outline for the next two chapters. Chapter 28 speaks of the special clothing the priests would wear. And chapter 9 has instructions for the consecration of the priests. So in these instructions, we learn three important truths about the role of these priests, the, the way that they ministered in Israel and the lessons that we can draw from that. So three things about, or three truths we learn from these priests. Number one, the clothing of the priests teaches us about what they do. The clothing teaches us that priests represent God's people. Priests represent God's people. The clothing that these men were to wear was to set them apart. Verse 2 tells us it is for glory and for beauty. You might say, what's that about? Well, that doesn't mean that the priests are supposed to be fashion icons. That doesn't mean that their garments are supposed to be impressive just because of how they looked. It actually was setting them apart, and it says something about the nature of their role. They are supposed to be different, and they're performing a sacred duty that held a special significance for the whole nation. Only the priests were to be dressed this way because only the priests fulfilled this role on behalf of the nation. It talked about the importance of their function. It's interesting as you read down through this chapter, which I hope you've done this week, we always send out uh, an email to people who come to our church and say, here's the passages we're going to be covering. And when we're covering big chunks like this, it's especially helpful if you can sort of read through all the details that we don't have time to cover. But if you read through that this week, perhaps you noticed that some of the, the threads and the fabrics they were to use, it sort of matched the fabrics that was used in the construction of the tabernacle. It showed that these garments are not just for going to the grocery store. This isn't your going out to eat, you know, clothes. These garments belonged in the tabernacle. They were for those who served there. It set these men apart as serving in this place. There were six articles of clothing, and they're mentioned in verse 4 as sort of a summary. It says, These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. So there's six. It says, They shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. These six garments are sort of explained in the rest of the chapter. Verse 6 through 14 tells us about the ephod. This was sort of a vest, a garment that covered the torso. Um, and it's not a normal piece of clothing. This isn't just something that everybody would have worn, just a special version of it. This was kind of a unique, special, ceremonial garment that was worn over the inner garment. And it signified divine presence. It signified that this was someone who encountered God. This is someone who had access to his presence, someone who fulfilled this unique role. 
Later, Israel would actually have problems with people making um, uh, counterfeit ephods, illegitimate ephods that they would even worship as idols and use in sort of a superstitious way. If you've read through Judges and some of those other books, perhaps you've seen that before. But this ephod was the one authorized by God. And the most significant aspect of this item of clothing was the engraved stones that were found on the shoulders. And these stones contained the names of the 12 tribes. Look at verse 9 through 12. It says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance." This is really significant when it comes to this garment. Think about this. As these two shoulder pieces with the finely engraved names were placed on the shoulders of the high priest, from the divine perspective, think about what this signifies. The Lord would have looked at the priest, perhaps signifying the Lord looking down from heaven, seeing the shoulders, or perhaps the Lord there manifesting his presence at the Ark of the Covenant and the priest bowing before him. The Lord would have looked at the priest and he would have seen Israel. That's what this is about. The priest represents the nation. And this would have been especially true as the priest was offering sacrifice on behalf of the nation. That he comes bearing the identity of the nation itself on his shoulders, representing them to God. From the divine perspective, the priest represented the people to God. From the human perspective, the priest was to bear the identity of Israel upon himself before the Lord. He was the, the human representative. And at all times, the priest was to be highly aware of this role, that he represented the people before God. So this ephod, although it had you know, special designs and, and had much beauty and glory, the function of it, that it carried the names of Israel, was very, very significant for what the priest was to do. His job was to represent the people to God. In verses 15 through 30, we, we see more details that reinforce the same point when Moses receives instruction for the breastpiece. The breastpiece also drove home this idea of representation. It was an ornate cloth pouch that was worn uh, over the chest, and it had 12 precious stones. We see this in verse 17. It says, You shall set in it, in the breastpiece, four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be on the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes." The meaning of these 12 stones is similar to the, the shoulder pieces, and it's set forth for us in verse 29 through 30. If you just look down the page a little bit, it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. 
And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So not only does the priest carry on his shoulders, as it were, the weight of the nation representing them to God, he also carries them on his heart. He's not only seeking to make sacrifice to the Lord on their behalf, but he also is to seek God's will for the people. I think that's what's, what's so significant here about the Urim and the Thummim. This is something that maybe seems a little archaic to us. It's a little bit mysterious. We don't know a lot about them, but it appears from elsewhere in Scripture that this was a dark stone and a light stone carried in this pouch, and it was a sort of a last resort means of determining the will of God. Sometimes the will of God is very easy to determine because it's written for us in Scripture. Sometimes, in that day and age, the will of God was made clear to them through a prophet who directly revealed God's word to them. But sometimes, in rare cases, there was no written word that gave guidance. There was no direct word revealed through the mouth of the prophet or a priest. And so what they would do is sort of use these stones, when they were torn between two options, to sort of flip a coin, almost like rolling the dice. But this was not just leaving something up to chance. This was something that they did specifically in faith. It was an act of faith, trusting that God would sovereignly choose the outcome. And it was something that the priest did on behalf of the people, signifying, Lord, we desire your will. I carry the nation on my heart, and our desire is to do your will. And so they would therefore leave things into God's hands in terms of judgment, in terms of making decisions. Um, This is demonstrating an implicit trust in the sovereignty of God. So the priest is someone who represents the people to God, but he's also someone who seeks the will of God on behalf of the people. The robe also is significant. In verses 31 through 35, we see the instructions for the robe that the priest wore. And we find in verses 33 through 35, there's supposed to be these little bells that are sewn into the hem. If you look down in verse 33, it says, On the hem of the robe you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold in between them. So you have these, these little intricate pomegranates and then every other you have these bells interspersed with them. You say, well, what's the importance of this? Well, it tells us. It says, And it shall be on Aaron, verse 35, when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. This was supposed to be a perpetual signal that while the priest was allowed entrance into the tabernacle, the priests were never supposed to get overly comfortable and take for granted how serious of a matter it was that they would come into the presence of God. Um, I don't know about you guys, maybe when you go to a family member's house, maybe you go to your parents' house if they're still living, maybe you go to you know, a close friend's house or, or one of your kids' house, maybe you don't knock. Maybe you have that sort of relationship where you can just let yourself in and kind of yell out from the living room that you're there. Um, you've been there so many times, it's like, well, this is kind of like, it's almost like my house. I mean, I can go right over to the fridge and just help myself, don't even have to ask permission. And while God is hospitable, we talked about this with the tabernacle, he comes to dwell with his people. The lamp is always lit, the light is always on, the table is always set for his people. And he invites them into his house. At the same time, no one is supposed to barge in unannounced. This is the doorbell. 
These little bells were to make sounds as the priest enter in, entered in, announcing, as it were, their presence, saying, I'm here and I'm coming in. This was important for them to recognize the seriousness of coming in before the Lord. Not just anybody could do it, only the priest could, but he also couldn't just come in any which way he wanted, at any time he wanted. These regulations were to carefully uh, order the way that the priests fulfilled their duties, and it shows the seriousness of them coming into the presence of God. Verse 36 through 38 tells us something about the turban, that there's supposed to be this special gold plate that is mounted there. You see this in verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. Verse 38 tells us it should be on Aaron's forehead. And it says, And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. This announced that the priest himself was holy. He was set apart by God, set apart for God. And you might ask, well, how does a golden plate make a priest holy? And can I get one of those? Is there like a link or something, you know, to to order that? No. Um, This golden plate didn't actually make the priest holy. God made the priest holy. This plate was a symbol. It was not a magical good luck charm. And by wearing it and by entering into the holy place where God was, the priest was trusting in God, trusting that God would make him holy, trusting that God would receive him, trusting that the very sacrifices and the consecration that we'll see in a few moments, that those things were accepted by God. So apart from faith, this plate meant nothing. All the rituals that the priest performed depended on the conscious faith of the worshiper in order to be effective. It also was a signal that the people were to trust that God would accept the the service of the priest on their behalf, that God would accept him because he was holy, set apart for that work by God. So while there's a lot more we could say and more details to explore, a few key things we learn from the clothing from the priests is that they represent the people before God. They are to seek the will of God, and they are trusting God to sanctify them. They must be holy, and only God can make them holy. And that leads us to chapter 29 and several important steps of consecration. So before we transition to chapter 29, chapter 28 simply teaches us, if you're going to summarize us, that the clothing teaches us that they represent the people, that priestly work is representative work. They function as mediators for the people of God. But the consecration of the priests, secondly, teaches us that the priests are to be holy. And again, this plate sort of hints at what is to come, that the priests are kadosh Adonai, set apart to the Lord. They are to be holy unto God. And just like there's six articles of clothing in chapter 28, we find six steps of consecration in chapter 29. Verse 4 tells us they're supposed to be washed with water. This is a ceremonial thing. It's not about washing dirt. It's about making them ceremonially clean. It's a ritual of cleansing. Secondly, they're to be dressed with all the special clothing that we just learned about. Verses 5 through 6 says they're to be dressed with these items. And this marks them, it marks Aaron and his sons, as the ones who are called by God, set apart by him to represent the people. Verse 7 tells us they are then to be anointed with oil. So the men have been selected, they've been washed, they've been clothed, 
Now they are to be anointed with oil, to have a special oil poured on them or, or dabbed on them to signify their initiation into the priesthood. So before this point, before anointing, they're clean. They're even dressed like priests. But it's not until they are anointed that now they are made to be priests. Just like kings were anointed and therefore made kings, so also these priests were to be anointed. So the first three steps are washing, dressing, anointing. The second three steps of this consecration have to do with sacrifice. And the first sacrifice is a sin offering. Look in verse 10 of chapter 29. It says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. The sin of the priest must be dealt with before he can enter into the tabernacle and, and make atonement for the sins of the people. He can't help them with their issues until his problems get dealt with. His own sin has to be atoned for. And the laying of the hands on the head of the bull paints a vivid picture for us that there's a transferal of guilt taking place. This is the doctrine of imputation, that the sin of, of the priest is being transferred to the animal, and that the animal, when that animal dies, is paying for the sins of that man. Then comes a second sacrifice, a ram for a whole burnt offering. We see this in verses 15 through 18. It says, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. This burnt offering, once again, the, the hands are to be laid on the, hand, uh, on the head of the animal. So the ram is taken, and Aaron and his sons place their hands on this creature, showing that the animal is now identified with the priest. Once again, the animal is to be a substitute. And this time, the whole thing is offered to the Lord. And this sacrifice is not about atonement for sin. That's already taken place with the bull. This is not about guilt and forgiveness. This is rather signifying the dedication of the priest, that his whole life is offered to God, just like this whole animal is burnt on the offering. He is dedicating himself to the service of God. That's what this second sacrifice symbolizes. And then comes a third sacrifice, what's called the ordination offering. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy." and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The blood of this third sacrifice is to be sprinkled on Aaron, or, or rather dabbed on Aaron's ear and, and thumb 
and toe, signifying that the whole person, again, is in view. And this was to mark them as holy. They are set apart to the Lord, they and their garments. Their garments are to be sprinkled along with the altar itself. And this now officially ordains them into the priesthood. And while the other animals were offered completely to the Lord, both the sin offering and the burnt offering, this last sacrifice is offered symbolically in the hand. Uh, it, it later tells us in this text that they are to, so it's called a wave offering. They are to lift it up and offer it before the Lord and then receive it back. The Lord blesses it, as it were, and gives it back to them. And they are able to eat this sacrifice. This is God's provision for them. So they share in this offering, unlike the other offerings. And so this whole process of consecration, there's the washing, the dressing, the anointing, and then there's the sin offering, the burnt offering, and then finally this wave offering that ordains them into the priesthood. It teaches us something. That in order to deal with the people's sin, first their sin has to be dealt with. In order to enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people, they have to be clean. They have to be made holy. And that God in his grace makes all of this possible. This isn't them figuring out a way to negotiate with God like, hey God, if we make you know, two, actually I'll raise it. How about we make three sacrifices? Will it be okay then if we come into the tabernacle? Will you hear our prayers Will you forgive our sins? No, this isn't them negotiating with God. This is God graciously providing a way, saying, you can come into my presence. I will receive your worship, and you can perform this crucial ministry on behalf of the nation. Here's the steps you need to go through. God is able to make them fit for this service. He is not just a God who allows sacrifice as a, confession, as a concession of sorts. No, he is a God who desires to forgive sin, a God who desires to receive their prayers, a God who desires to be worshiped and he makes every accommodation for it. And he's not only doing this for the priests, he's doing it also for the nation that will benefit from their priestly work. And the result of all of this is that they can now fulfill their priestly duties. Verses 38 through 42 tell us about daily sacrifices the priests would make. Each morning and each evening, a young lamb. And it tells us this amazing reality that's brought about by the consistent following of these procedures, making these sacrifices. Verse 43 says that when the priests make these regular burnt offerings in every generation, it says there at this tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What God does through these priests is make it such that he can meet with his people, to speak with them, to receive their worship and to reveal himself in his glory so that they know him. God wants to be known. God wants his people to be in an intimate relationship with him where there is fellowship shared, where there is communication shared, where he dwells in their midst. And in order for this to happen, the priests have to do this job. And so God outlines and ordains how this would all take place. Just like a plane needs a pilot to fly, God's plan for his people to be in this kind of a relationship with them 
requires that the priests fulfill their duties. And as they do, the people enjoy the fulfillment of God's plan. That he not just wanted to bring them out of Egypt so that they could get a break from being slaves. No, he wanted to dwell among them so that they would know who he is and worship him and enjoy this covenant relationship with him as their God. So these Old Testament priests, they had six key clothing items. They went through six steps of consecration. And if you know a little bit about how numbers work in Scripture, we know that seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. And as good and as gracious and as amazing as this Old Testament priesthood was, it was never quite enough. It always fell just a little bit short. Priests would one day die, and they needed to be replaced. Not all the priests were holy. As you read scripture, you see there were some who did not live up to God's calling for them. And no matter how many sacrifices were made, no matter how many times the altar was, was splashed with blood and this pleasing aroma was offered up to God, there always needed to be more. Because there was always a new day with new sin and more need for atonement. You see, what God's people needed in the end, what they really needed in order to enjoy this ideal relationship with God, what they needed was more than what these priests could offer. And that's actually the point. That's part of what this is meant to teach. This is an illustration of what God's people need if they're going to be in a covenant relationship with him, this priesthood points us forward to something that God was going to one day do, something God would one day provide through a better priest, an ultimate mediator, one who would be holy to the Lord and one who would offer an acceptable sacrifice on their behalf. I want to invite you to flip to the New Testament and turn to Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. And many of his followers are very troubled because they don't understand what's going on. And in verse 13, Luke records this amazing story for us. This is on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It says, That very day, two of them, two of his disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? I love how Jesus is asking questions here, drawing them out. It's like, oh, tell me about it. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And look how Jesus answers. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have been there on the road to Emmaus to listen to Jesus preach the Old Testament and show his people all the things in the Old Testament that pointed forward to him. He tells them that they were foolish ones, that they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And he talks about how it was necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, be crucified and die and rise again. And I have to believe that some of the things Jesus explained to them that day on the road as they walked were from Exodus chapter 28 and Exodus chapter 29 about what it means that Jesus is a greater and a better high priest who comes to do what God's people needed. You see, Moses was laying the groundwork for Jesus. Jesus is the one who would fulfill the priestly duties for God's people in the new covenant. You see, everything that the old covenant priests did pointed forward to Jesus. We see so much of this laid out for us and explained in Hebrews. Hebrews teaches us that the Son of God became a man so that he might represent us. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus came to be our priest, to represent us, to carry our names, not carved on his shoulders, but engraved in his hands and his side. He makes propitiations for us, the sins of the people. He makes a sacrifice that satisfies the righteous demands of God's wrath. Christ's priestly work was done not in an earthly tent like a tabernacle, not in an earthly temple built with hands, but Christ's priestly work had heavenly significance. Hebrews 4, 14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Christ's priestly work is accomplished on our behalf in the very heavenly temple where the glory of God dwells. And Hebrews tells us that his work is far superior to any other priest because it is permanent, it is complete, it is a once-for-all sacrifice. Hebrews 10, chapter 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. No more sacrifices. No more need for another priest because our priest doesn't die. 
and his sacrifice was once and for all. I believe that this would have been some of the things that Jesus explained to these two travelers on the road to Emmaus. And this is the meaning of the cross. We have Jesus as our high priest. He represents us. He bears our sin before the Father. He is our mediator. Just like the tabernacle was the place where God would meet with his people, interacting with the priests, it is in Jesus that we meet God. He is the living word, God's revelation of himself to us. And he's also our intercessor, the one who prays on our behalf to the Father. And Jesus offers the eternal sacrifice, not for his sin, because he had none. He offers a sacrifice for ours, a perfect and final sacrifice, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can enjoy a relationship with him. Friends, this is a truth to be believed. Jesus says to these disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is not just something to understand as a truth. This is not just a theological construct that's interesting. It is something that calls for faith. Believe in what Jesus has done. It is to be believed. But it is also a truth that is to be proclaimed. If you're still in Luke, look in verse 44. Later, Jesus reappears to these disciples, they now know who he is. Verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. If this is a new truth for you, then today God calls you to believe, to place your faith in Jesus and to trust in him as the one who can do something for you you can't do for yourself. To atone for sin and bring you into the presence of God. Friends, if you do believe this truth, if you do understand it, if you have embraced it, then you have a job to do. We are to be witnesses of these things. This truth that we now see, this truth that we now understand from Scripture, this truth that we have believed in, it is meant to overflow our hearts and be spoken by our mouths to people who need to hear. This gospel truth of the good news that Jesus is a better priest, our great high priest, who has made a perfect sacrifice and has completed his priestly work and sat down at the right hand of the Father. No more sacrifice needed. Now he is our mediator who intercedes for us. This truth, it's meant to spill out of this place. It's meant to be told around Lawrence, Douglas County, Kansas, this nation, and all the world. We're called to not only receive Christ's priestly work and benefit from it, we're called to be witnesses, called to be witnesses of it. Do you see? Do you believe? In verse 32, these two disciples, once they realized that it was Jesus they had been talking with, they said to each other, 
Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I hope that your hearts burn this morning with faith, that you would rejoice in everything that Christ has done for us as the perfect high priest. And I hope that that burning will affect the way you speak to those who need Christ's priestly ministry, those who are still in their sins, those who need a mediator. They need someone to bring them to God. Will you tell them? Will you tell them about the glory of Christ? Will you tell them about what all the scriptures point to? Will you tell them about our great high priest and be witnesses of these things? God calls us to do so. Let's believe this truth. Let's worship Christ. And let's be quick to tell others about our great high priest and everything that God has done through him on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the Old Testament priesthood and the lessons that are taught, we recognize our need for a representative. We cannot come to you and stand on our own two feet. And we thank you for providing Jesus, your son, to represent us, to identify with us, to take our names upon his heart and to die in our place on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for accepting his perfect work and for bringing us into a saving relationship with yourself. Lord Jesus, we give you glory and our hearts burn this morning as we see, we see your fingerprints, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old. I pray that you would fill us with joy and hope and confidence and courage as we believe in what you did. And Lord, if there's some here today who's who do not yet have faith, I pray that today they would not just understand this message. I pray they would believe it, that they would trust in it. That they would not seek to present themselves to you, but rather they would entrust their soul to you, Jesus, entrusting it to you, that you would save them, that you would represent them before the Father, that you would cleanse them and atone for their sin, that you would be their mediator. Perish the thought that any of us could ever make our own way to you and deal with our own sins by our own efforts and our own righteousness. We cannot clean ourselves of sin. We cannot make up for or atone for our transgressions. We are helpless. We are needy. Lord Jesus, you are a sufficient Savior. So if any don't believe, I pray that today they would, that they would place their faith in Christ. And Father, I ask that you would Give us eyes that see this truth written on every page and that you would use our words, our voices to proclaim to all the world about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what it is, the salvation that is accomplished there for all who believe. Lord, use us to share this good news with many who will hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.